After months of intense research, an NFL linebacker with the San Francisco 49ers gets off the phone with a leading brain scientist from Boston University. His mind is made up. There is no doubt remaining. Chris Bullen is about to walk away from a four-year, multi-million dollar contract, a move that would shock the sporting world and label him as the most dangerous man in football. I knew I couldn't go back. You just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. Just dug even deeper. Luck is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Kogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to tick it before you kick it. The sound. Just, you know, when two guys that are 250 plus pounds run at full speed, that the sound of that collision, you can hear, you know, 100,000 people can hear that. Linebacker Chris Bolin, described as a heat-seeking missile, was selected in the third round of the 2014 NFL Draft for the San Francisco 49ers. As a college football player, he was named the Big Ten's Freshman of the Year, got on the watch list for the Butkus Award given to the nation's best linebackers, and ranked the number four defensive MVP by ESPN. Just a few of Borland's achievements, which got the attention of the NFL scouts and thrust him into the spotlight. Yet just months after getting all-rookie honors for recording 107 tackles, a sack, two interceptions, and a fumble recovery for the 49ers, and with a stellar football career ahead for this 24-year-old, Chris Bullen walked away from it all in March 2015, confident about the biggest decision he'd made in his life. This is his incredible story. Everything is rolling. All right, great. Everything is rolling. How long have you been in L.A. now? Just over 18 months. What do you think? What's your impression? <laughs> it took some getting used to. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest and uh, lived in the Bay Area and Atlanta, um, so I hadn't spent a whole lot of time in Southern California. But once you get adjusted, um, there's no place I'd, I'd rather be. I've become a, a Southern California cliche. I do yoga and go surfing, and um, but I love it. I'm really enjoying L.A. Kind of the antithesis of what we would think of when we think of a football player. Right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. When you were first starting out as a kid and you were playing football, did you ever imagine yourself living in Venice, surfing, doing yoga, meditating? Was that something that was in your on your mind at that time? Well, growing up in Dayton, Ohio, the surf isn't too good. So I yeah. uh, never anticipated that. No. Um, had never heard of meditation growing up um, or yoga, really. And so living a wildly different life than I anticipated as a kid. But um, it's been great. I think those things are all wonderful to transition out of competitive sports, um, you know, feeling refreshed physically and mentally and um, enjoying that lifestyle. You, you, still, you still look like a football player. I mean, I know you're doing the yoga and the surfing and all of that, but you, you look like you're ready to run out onto the field. Like you, you've still got the build. Well, I think um, I was 11 pounds the day I was born. My dad was a college football player. Um, you, know. you got the genes. <laughs> There's nothing I can do to combat you know, being a stocky guy. Um, but I am about 30 pounds lighter than when I played. I can't imagine how fierce you must have looked when you were playing. <laughs> Maybe heavy, but uh, I'm short. So joke, coaches used to joke that I'm, I'm built like a fire hydrant. Um, yeah. It served me well in the field. Um, but in life, I think it's... Uh, you know, there's no reason to carry around all that weight. So 30 pounds heavier would have had you at what weight then? About 245. 
And you, how tall? Do you mind me asking? Uh, no, just, just under six feet. Okay, yeah. just under six feet. And okay, so that's that just sounds dangerous. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, you're low center of gravity, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but you could fly. I mean, you were. But there were people who thought you were a little small, right? To go all the way to the highest level in the sport. Yeah, I think um, size was a concern and speed too. But uh, yeah, I think. When you do the math, you know, I was just under an eighth of a ton and colliding against guys that were the same weight or heavier, in many cases faster. Um, so those those collisions on the field were, were pretty violent. And essentially, uh, if I remember anything from science, the faster you go, the more weight transfer there is, right? You want to be the faster object when you hit another <laughs> object. Isn't that how it works? That's uh, Science was the furthest thing from our minds while we were playing. But yeah, that's exactly right. So it's four years ago now that you retired and uh, it made headlines everywhere. I, I, I like football. I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm an ardent football fan, but I heard about it. Uh, it, it made news everywhere. It, and a big decision, if I'm not mistaken, you were 24. That's right. Yeah, you make this decision uh, and a huge decision to make it's at such an age. But for those people who didn't see the news um, and who don't know your story, Tell us what happened four years ago when you retired from the NFL. Before I do, I, I wasn't the first guy to do it, and I think part of the reason that it, it captured the public's attention uh, was where I found myself in my career. Mm. And so I was a third-round draft pick of the 49ers in 2014, wound up starting my rookie year, um, and had some success. Led the team in tackles, um, was named to the all-rookie team, was named to the Pro Bowl team as an alternate. Um, so it would be fair to say you were pretty successful at what it was you were asked to do. Yeah, it would be fair, yeah. uh, not to be boastful, but it was you yeah. know, some early success. And, and, um, but all the while was looking into uh, the science that had been coming out uh, with former players and, and brain diseases and things of the like. Um, and then, uh, couldn't have anticipated this, but as I was making, you know, contemplating my decision and deciding what to do with my life and career, uh, Patrick Willis, our starting, you know, all pro linebacker, um, he retired, you know, a week before I had intended on telling the team. Uh, one thing I took solace in was, you know, you know, they drafted me expecting me to play, but at least they'll have, you know, perennial pro bowler Patrick Willis and Navarro Bowman back. will be there. We'll yeah. be there. And I was actually in Mexico uh, teaching a, a clinic with kids and uh, saw the news that Pat uh, decided to, to quit or retire. And uh, it didn't affect my decision. You know, my mind was made up. Um, my decision wasn't based solely on the science. It was also my personal experience. Um, was knocked out and had a brain contusion in eighth grade, a similar injury in 10th grade, um, and then had many more of a similar severity that I just played through uh, high school, college, and, and with the Niners. So um, made what was the best decision for me. I've always refrained from, and I simply don't think it's accurate to say it's the best decision for everyone, um, but I was naive to just how much attention it would garner. Um, found myself on Face the Nation and CBS yeah. this morning, you know, the, next, the following week. Um, and it kind of just snowballed from there. It, it's an irony in my life that, you know, I quit not to have to talk about or deal with CTE um, and to a certain degree uh, do it every day. As, as good as you were as a football player and as much attention as you were garnering playing the sport, all of a sudden you were thrust even to, into the limelight even more. Right. For something that you didn't want. <laughs> I've, I've met people that are advocates or activists and I just don't fit the bill. I'm not 
uh, I don't want to burn anything down or disparage a game that's given me a lot. Uh, that said, there's some very real issues. And so I, I was really cast into this role and um, at a young age and not having prepared for it, needed to find a way to navigate it skillfully, uh, which I, I feel like I've done. You know, we're four years out um, and I've been a part of some efforts to know simply help players that are in need but also to change some things about the game where we can retain football um, but make it dramatically safer for those that choose to play I'm interested in your awareness because you mentioned you had concussion in eighth grade 10th grade you said your dad played football I'm just interested in when you whether your dad's used to say anything to you about playing football and whether it was dangerous or whether you know that was a generation where it was sort of like shake it off get it back out you'll be fine just because we didn't know as much as we know today yeah looking back it seems as though i started in 2004 excuse me 2005 okay um so that was the same year that uh mike webster's autopsy was published mike webster was the first case of cte and so really my career spanned you know what i would say is complete ignorance we didn't know the disease existed um through you know peak awareness of the issue with football players um Prior to my senior year at Wisconsin, Junior Seau took his life. And yes. um, that was the first instance I remember um, really being taken aback and thinking, whoa, um, here's a guy who's one of the all-time greats in, in the profession that I want to pursue. And I was considering leaving after my junior year, and he did that, you know, t- shooting himself in the chest to preserve his brain for study. Um, so I really, in 10 years, went from, you know, no, no one had heard of CTE to you know it being pertinent, um, you know, in a very practical way for me. You know, I didn't know what CTE stood for. I didn't know. Can you tell us? By the way, just so we, because this is what we hear, and and a lot of people understand it's the brain being damaged. But what what is it? What's the acronym? Yeah, it stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy, uh, and it's a neurodegenerative disease that uh, folks that uh, incur repetitive brain injury get. Um, so there is some uh, discussion on uh, just how unique of a pathology it is. Uh, I think we're at a point now where um, it's clearly a distinct disease. Um, and and it, we've seen it a lot in NFL football players in college and even some high school football players. We've also also seen it in, in soccer players and, and rugby athletes. Um, so it affects more people than just football players. Where would it occur, say, in soccer? Like what's, a, what's something that they do where they would have CTE. Yeah, there's um, heading, very simply, and uh, particularly with with young kids um, and young girls. Uh, So biomechanically with weaker necks, um, and this all comes with the caveat that I'm not a neuroscientist or researcher, uh, but the whiplash you experience uh, when you head a ball that's going 30 miles per hour um, really jars your brain, and your brain sits unfastened within your skull. and, and what's important about CTE, I think, is the notion of repetitive hits. So we all think of it in terms of concussion, um, but there's players that have been diagnosed with, with CTE um, who've never had a diagnosed concussion. So is it fair to say that you could take a hit, not get knocked out, but then you're still causing damage? Exactly. It, yeah. On a repetitive basis. Exactly. And the brain doesn't feel pain. And there can even be injury that's in, incurred uh, in your asymptomatic. So you're not stumbling or your ears aren't ringing and there's still damage going on in the brain. Um, there's certainly a tremendous amount to learn. Um, again, I'm not, this isn't my right. field. No, but, but I mean, I think what's good is that you have the ability to communicate this in layman's terms, which is, which is what we need. And 
and and it does beg the question then what exactly is happening physically you said the brain is 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 floating it's not attached right so when the brain or the head takes an impact what is happening physically to the brain in that moment uh, it's it's like a, a yolk in an egg or maybe a, a person in a car not wearing a seatbelt. And so the outside of, of the helmet and skull come to a stop and the brain doesn't. And so it's an, the, the issue is inertia. It right. slams against the inside of the skull, um, maybe reverberates against the, the backside uh, and continues. Um, your brain is gelatous. It's soft and mushy. Your skull is rigid and hard and um, when, when the brain slams against the inside of the skull, you know, axons can tear, which are, um, you know, how, how your brain communicates. Right. The, um, all the wiring, essentially. Exactly. And the issue with, with something like CTE is uh, the secretion of tau. And so it's this protein that actually goes to heal uh, where an injury is, where you've sustained an injury. And it lays down these tracks that ultimately cut off healthy uh neurotransmitters and so the brain can no longer fire so that's why when we've seen these slices of the brain in autopsies where you see these black patches that's an area of the brain where literally those it's not firing right the, the wires are not connected anymore it's essentially killed off that part of the brain is that fair to say yeah and then again I'm wading into waters where I'm, I'm certainly not an expert but right. that's how I've heard it explained is that um, the tauopathy or, or the tau that's been laid down within the brain strangles and cuts off healthy neural activity hmm. so you get more and more interested in 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 all of this uh, is it a is it a discussion that a lot of players coming up like when you were you said eighth tenth grade you get knocked out is this a discussion that a lot of footballers have is it openly talked about or is it sort of something that is seen as a a weakness if you like yeah I think it must be talked about these days um, at least more than when it was while I was playing you know I can remember reading about it in secret in the locker room and you know, not wanting to put that burden or psychological stress on my teammates, um, but wanting to inform myself. Um, so I can't know for sure. I haven't been in a locker room in four years, but while I was playing, it wasn't something that was, that was discussed. Um, I think for a number of reasons. One, as you mentioned, you don't want to appear to be weak. Right. Um, and secondly, there's a job at hand. And you know, the biggest cliche in sports is you don't want to be a distraction. And you want to be a team player. You want to be a team player. And you don't want to be, you know, seen to be the weakest link in the chain, right? Like, why are you drawing so much attention to yourself? Just get on and play. Exactly. And so much of that is cultural, but I, I think, at least in my case, a lot of it was internal. Um, you know, I really, I believed in the ethos of those things and didn't want to be a distraction, didn't, didn't want to be a selfish player on a team. Um, so kept it to myself. Um, thankfully had some great teammates that, uh, were you could on confide in towards the end of the year. Yeah. Um, as I began to look into it more, um, it's, it can be isolating because you have no one, you know, so few people that you can relate to in terms of your experience as a pro football player. Um, and of that group, um, maybe even fewer that can talk about the science intelligently right. or care to. Um, so towards the end of the year, I began to talk to friends and teammates that were on IR. Um, I didn't want to talk to active players just because, you know, I knew what it was like to be researching a brain disease, you know, 
Monday through Friday and then Sunday going out on the field and, and you know making 15 tackles um, and it was and you were known for your tackles I mean you you, you were you were racking them up we ha- I had a good run there I yeah. think um, part of that was them going after the rookie but um, but I'll take it I, I think I answered answered the call you you certainly did I and mean, you only have to look at the statistics to see that you did and I'm interested just in the pathway here now so you're playing as a kid um, you you obviously have seen or know that your father's played, right? So what's the progression now out of school into college? Tell us about that transition. Yeah, I, I had such a charmed, you know, childhood one, but career in football. Um, I'm one of seven children in my family. I've got five brothers. They um, played? Everybody played in high school except for one. And all of my siblings, except for one, played a college sport. Two of us played pro sports. Wow, so. you come, you got the genes. <laughs> we grew up in a locker room, essentially. <laughs> yeah. uh, my sister's the oldest, and then it's six boys. Um, so this was, you know, talk about a culture where you don't want to appear weak. Tell us about th- this, this one particular play that got you a lot of attention. I, I think you <laughs> kind of tried to fly. You didn't have a cape, but you were ready to take off. And it, it was in high school. Um, oh, it was in high school. It was in high school. Okay, so, so tell us about this play because you got a lot of attention. It, I, I did. It was the first time that I'd ever. You know, I, I grew up in a you know smallish suburb of a, of a small Midwest town, and uh, you know, the two rival high schools, uh, you know, play the first game of the year, and the whole community comes out. It can be vicious. And, those those rivalries can be. <laughs> It's called the backyard brawl, and yeah. um, so a big game that the community loves. And uh, I don't remember when in the game it was, but um, our opponent was running a short yardage play to pick up a first down. And I played mostly offense, uh, but it was a good athlete, so our coaches would kind of just throw me out on defense and um, you know say either guard this player or find the ball. And uh, on this particular play, you know, they just ran a, what's called a dive, so just aiming to get that one yard on, on third and short. And uh, didn't really know what I was doing, but thought I could jump over the line. And uh, it really just unfolded naturally. They handed it off. I, I jumped over our defensive line and <laughs> <laughs> offensive line and kind of grabbed the running back and realized in midair, um, you know, I, the only way I'm going to bring them down is by, is by doing a somersault. And... Uh, brought them down and, and they were stopped on, on third down. So um, it, it also coincided with YouTube becoming popular. So you, you got you got attention and then, and, and was it sort of immediately, was that the trigger for people coming after you to start talking about college opportunities? Um, started to get some attention my, my sophomore year and sat down with my dad who, who played college football. And Where did he play? At, at uh, Miami University Miami, in Ohio. Okay. Um, and thought, you know, this is something I want to do. And he said, okay, well, let's, you know, create a plan. Um, and if there was any school I could have gone to, I would have decided on Wisconsin. Um, it's where my grandfather went and my dad grew up and we were all Badger fans. Um, and so we, you know, we went to camp there. I performed well in the summer between my junior and senior year, uh, and they offered a scholarship. Uh, so I committed 45 minutes later and that was, my recruiting process was open and shut. And it continued at Wisconsin. You know, I um, started as a freshman, and, and we had team success. And during my time there, we went to three Rose Bowls and, and won a lot of games. And um, it was really just a, you know, a really charmed, incredible time. I think that was uh, the Rose Bowl was what uh, was 2013, right? You were you were there. Yeah, we went to three consecutive Rose Bowls. So um, 2011, 12, and 13. You had. Uh, 
what you said a season high with 13 tackles in 2012 at the Big Ten football championship game against Nebraska. That's right. That I think so. Yeah. I'm going to show up for you. Uh, and then you got a uh, recorded a team high nine tackles in 2013, the Rose Bowl against Stanford, named first team All Big Ten by the coaches and honorable mention by the media. And ESPN ranked you number four defensive MVP. So you were you're a star, of, uh, to a certain degree. I I mean I'm I'll take credit for for playing well, but really we had a great defense, um, and it was I was. Just, a lot of that is uh, I'm the beneficiary of uh, of our system and of a lot of great players I played beside. But um, you were given a gift, you, you, and you know not everybody can do it. I mean, it's the 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 you know that that little percentile of the of one percent that gets the chance to go to the highest level, and you go from college now, and then you get this chance to go to the highest level. Something that you'd been thinking about ever since you were a little boy, right? Yeah, I always dreamed of, of being a pro athlete and uh, in particular being a, a pro football player. Uh, was a huge Packers fan growing up with my dad's side of the family coming from Wisconsin and loved Brett Favre um, and always dreamed of playing in the NFL. Um, it's surreal when you start out in college because what was a dream at 18 in high school, all of a sudden you're playing next to guys that are draft eligible a few months later. Um, and so it becomes real very quickly. Um, and I went from a small, smallish town to big time football, not knowing I could play, uh, played right away and realized, wow, in two years I could be in the NFL. Um, so it happens at warp speed. Um, but, uh, it's amazing. I mean, to have your name called on draft day and, uh, it's just special. It's like your whole life is captured in that one moment. You're with people that have helped you get to where you are. And with one ring of the phone, uh, you know, you're there uh, and everybody celebrates with you at the same time. So um, unforgettable moment. I think I fell into a great situation uh, in San Francisco. And uh, yeah, it was it was you know one of the best moments of my life. And yet underlying on, on all of that, that celebration that celebration and thinking about the achievement you're still in the back of your mind you're still thinking about this concussion situation it, it wasn't that high in my awareness uh going into the league um you know I, junior had taken his life and i that was the first time i remember thinking any more about it than hey what's cte stand for mm -hmm. um i can remember in training camp writing that i wanted to writing my goals down and you know wanted to play for a decade plus um and I was concussed in camp and um, I, I just wanted a clearer picture of what I was in store for. I, I realized um, after that concussion during training camp, eligibility doesn't run out in the NFL. So you can play for like Junior did 20 years or like Mike Webster did 16 years. And I had goals of playing for over a decade. And so I think the timing of that concussion caused me to, to wonder. It was a wake-up call? It was a wake-up call. It wasn't a bad injury. It was the time that it happened. And I, I wanted to better understand if this is going to be just a normal part of my job. Um, what am I in for? What's going to happen? What are the, is there an actuary that exists for guys that have my history and you know my experience or what would be my future experience? And so that was the impetus for beginning to look into the research. And what number concussion would that have been at that point in your life? How many times do you think you would have been knocked out by that stage? Yeah, it's it's a really difficult thing to quantify. Um, if, like you said before, it's not like you can measure it like, oh, I got knocked out here. You might have got concussed, but you're not 
stumbling around. Exactly. And if you if you read about this issue, you, you'll hear guys say things from, I've never been concussed to I've been concussed thousands of times. Mm. And if I can attempt to explain that, I, I think uh, a lot of football players or anyone considers a concussion being knocked unconscious, uh, vomiting, or you know being so dizzy you almost fall down. Um, in reality, the symptoms can be as small as slight ringing in your ears or uh, some imbalance or your visual field changing or a headache. And to count the number of times those happen, you know, between going both ways in high school on offense and defense, starting at Wisconsin for four years and, you know, missing three out of 51 games um, and then starting for the 49ers, um, it's a really difficult thing to quantify. Um, I went back and, and, and thought about the times that were as nearly as severe as, as the two that I have been diagnosed with. and. Uh, w- along with the neuroscientists, came to the number of 13. Um, but there's certainly a lot of gray area. I saw my first NFL game on the, on the frozen tundra, the field that you call the frozen oh, tundra, yeah. right? <laughs> um, Great place to see a first I, NFL game. Actually, our, our mutual friend, uh, Kelly Call, set up uh, an opportunity for me to go and see the game. And, and I got to see the game up close in a way that I'd never seen it before. Like I said to you, I played rugby mm-hmm. and early on in my career, I was on the sidelines running up and down, dragging the cable behind the cameraman. That was one of my first jobs mm-hmm. at 18. So I've seen world-class rugby players in the old black New Zealand national team. The difference between watching the physicality of a really, like the, a high level rugby game compared to football, it just blew me away. Mm-hmm. Because even on TV, you cannot get a sense of the force between two human beings when they collide. It's, it, it, it's, it's as if you've, you, you, you put on padding and you run into a brick wall. That's what it looks like to me and sounds like. And the groans and, and the no, it was, it, it gave me chills when I watched it. You're hitting on something that I think is really resonant, the sound. Um, just, you know, when two guys that are 250 plus pounds run at full speed that the sound of that collision you can hear you know 100,000 people can hear that yeah um so, so I, loud it's so loud um and I I'm, I'm with you I after I quit I took some time off football four months um and was invited back to um you know I had friends that were coaching at Oregon State and they invited me to their spring game and I was on the sidelines for the first time since my last game and couldn't believe the speed and size uh, and power of what's an average college football team. You were seeing it almost like the first time because you were desensitized when you were playing, right? You didn't know exactly what you were, in a way, you didn't realize just how crazy it was when you were in it. Oh, exactly. You're pumped you up, you're full of adrenaline. You know, I'll watch highlights or, or you know, see rarely, but sometimes see uh, live action. And uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, I don't think it's unique to football. I've had conversations with other athletes that get yep. after they're retired, go back and watch their sport, and they was, realize how was I really that good? Like, was I really that fast? And um, so it's universal. But I think the violence is uh, is even more uh, it's even more incredible because you don't see that anywhere other than a football field. Hopefully, I've I've heard people say, "Oh, because uh, I used to play rugby. I'm a big rugby fan. Oh, rugby it looks so much tougher because they're not wearing any pads." But I have to remind them that when you've got no protection, there's this sense of self-preservation. Mm-hmm. You keep your head out of the way in a tackle. Um, you tackle a certain way. If you remember uh, the coach of um, the Seattle 
team. Yeah, Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll yeah. was teaching his players how to tackle like rugby players to keep their head out of the way to protect themselves, right? Um, but I have to remind them that in rugby, you don't touch anybody who doesn't have the ball. Yeah. So the number of hits that you're going through in a game compared to football, where it's just this repetitive hit after hit after hit. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and another difference too, oftentimes you'll, you'll hear people say, uh, well, if you took the helmets off, football players would no longer have this false sense of security and would, wouldn't lead with their head. Uh, I've heard that. I've heard people say I think it's it's a good idea, but uh, where the rub is is that football is a different game spatially than rugby. Um, Like my play in high school, it was it was third and one, and you know twenty two men were fighting for an inch. Smaller field too. People don't realize, and you don't you can't go backwards or sideways. um, So it's it's all about you know forward and backward. Um, And so when you and I, if you and I were to meet in a small space at a high speed. It doesn't exactly matter where I put my head. We're meeting in a you know space smaller than a phone booth. Still that uh, force being transferred. Exactly, and so it's you know inertia is still at play. Um, so I, I think efforts like like the hawk tackling, it's called the rugby style tackling in football, yeah. are, are well intentioned. But um, I think it's a fool's errand in terms of eradicating brain injury from football. Yeah, you've said. Uh You've, you've talked about just what it's like when, when two players are hitting each other. And you said when, when they hit against each other, it's the equivalent of 20 Gs. Is that correct? With two people hitting together? Yeah, the, it, it can, it's a range, but it can be that high or higher. And, yeah. and it would be like driving your car 35 miles an hour into a brick wall. Mm-hmm. And then you're doing that upwards of 1,500. A player would be doing that upwards of 1,500 times a year. And I mean, think about going into a brick wall at 35 miles an hour once in a year. You'd be like, man, I need a drink. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. But this is, a, this is something that people are doing just again and again, which speaks to your point. It's the, it's the accumulation of damage, right? Yeah, Mike Webster famously said uh, when, so, when they saw scans of his brain, have, have you ever been in a car wreck? And he joked you know, darkly, thousands. Um, yeah. And so it's it's a, it's a stark reality. I think if I can try to you know strike a more hopeful tone, um, the NFL there's no hitting in the off season anymore. Um, there's only one contact practice, less than one contact practice per week throughout the season. Um, so we can begin to lower just the number of times you're in those collisions. Uh, unfortunately, uh, such measures don't exist at the college or youth level. Um, so when we talk about you know making the game safer, usually folks talk about what's going on between the lines. Um, but there's simple measures like retooling practice to remove contact um, that we could do to protect uh, you know kids coming up. Um, at the end of the day, it's a violent game, and that's you know, what transpires on the field. I loved it, and you know if I don't can contract a, a brain disease in my life, it was certainly worth it. But we can do a lot more to help folks coming up. Can you take us to the night before you make this big decision? Because one of the things that I find so amazing about your story is just that at, at 24 years old, with, with a signing bonus, with a huge salary, with having achieved a dream, a childhood dream, you get to the pinnacle of your sport, you're now on, on the verge of announcing to the world that you are going to make a decision that you believe is the right decision. Um, again, nothing against football, but you just think this is the right decision for me. And I'm just wondering what that night before the announcement was like for you. 
It was, I think I'd actually done all of the heavy lifting prior to the night before the decision. Um, coming from a big family and a close knit group of friends, you know, who helped me get to where I was, uh, who I love deeply, you know, I had to break the news, uh, you know, 15 step times over. Yeah. Um, so where'd you start out of interest? Uh, to my parents. Yeah. Um, alone one-on-one. Yeah. It just, uh, I wrote a little note and then, um, saw them at a game and gave them the note and then, uh, had a series of phone conversations. So I, I think I'd done all the heavy lifting and honestly, at that point it was a relief. Um, the 49ers deserve to know ahead of the draft and ahead of the end of free agency. Um, I was ready to move on. I'd been through the process of making the decision, and now it was just time to inform them. So where tell us about the announcement, where you were, and how it unfolded immediately after. I was in uh, in the Bay Area. Um, I, with the help of my agent, uh, had crafted um, you know, an explanation for my decision. Um, and then sent it in to the 49ers with hopes of setting up a meeting the following day. Um, they called immediately and we had good long conversations and, and we're going to set up a meeting. Um, this was on Friday, actually Friday the 13th. Was no, the, it wasn't. Is the day you I, chose Friday the I, 13th or did you just, just realize that? It just happened. That? I, yeah, <laughs> I hadn't, I think I must've realized as I was doing it. Um, but uh, well, so, you made a statement. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they thought it was a joke, but, yeah. um, wanted to set up a meeting uh, for, you know, if they could do it over the weekend or certainly Monday. Um, and that meeting never transpired and I don't know exactly why. And uh, we, we didn't understand what was taking so long or why it was quiet on their end. And so Monday decided to um, get out in front of any story that might be told that's not accurate. And so told the media on Monday. And you, you were very clear from the beginning that this wasn't uh, a dig at the NFL or any other players who decided that this was their choice in life. You, you made it pretty clear, if, if I'm reading you correctly, that this was a choice you made for you. you. You you looked at it, you made your own decisions, you weren't claiming to pull people away from the sport or anything. It was, this is what I feel is the best for me. Would that be accurate? Exactly. Um, one thing I've always appreciated is when people uh, refrain from having an opinion on my decision because right. they don't know what happened in eighth grade or climbing a tree in fourth grade right. or, you know, playing Minnesota my junior year. Yeah. Um, and I try to return the favor. Um, so I don't know the calculus that players do, um, to play or not play. And it's really none of my business. Um, I didn't intend for it to be a dig at the NFL or NCAA. Um, but it was read that way by some, well, I think their response actually, um, you know, immediately thereafter the NFL said that uh, concussions were down 25%. There's never been a safer time to play, you know, and those I think are euphemisms for <laughs> dangerous. Right. Uh, never a safer time really doesn't mean anything. Right. There's never been a safer time to yeah. hit, hit yourself in the face with a hammer, but it's maybe not a good idea. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think to a certain degree, th you know, gotten embroiled in some what's a really white hot discussion around the yeah. issue. I've always tried to just, you know, remember that at the core of this issue are people that are suffering. And yes. so uh, the bulk majority of any advocacy I've done is to help players who are living with brain injury. Yeah. Um, what about some of the people that you weren't able to tell, but are close to you and friends? Did anybody try to convince you to change your mind? Like, because they, because one of the things you had to do was hand back some money. So, I mean, this was serious. This is a big decision, not only because you were giving up something you loved, but financially it hurt you too. 
Yeah, b- big time. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I, I didn't play football for money or fame or anything like that. I'd love to play. And so I was more comfortable with uh, with that aspect of it than most yeah. people th- would think. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've got people that are close to me that could use some money and, you know, a guy that I feel that I'm better in just, just signed a $60 million contract. So there is like a morsel of me that thought, but ultimately I, I can't justify continuing to play. And, and um, while there are folks that could use some money that I'm close with, I certainly don't come from the background that many of my teammates and friends did. Uh, and a number of guys have said, you know, I'd do the same thing if I weren't a meal ticket for my family, basically. Right. And so I respect that. That's God, part. That must be heartbreaking when you know that, right? That that they're maybe in a different place in terms of what decision they can make in life. Yeah, I know it is, and it, it's more a commentary on on you know class and and race and other things than it is on health or sport. But yeah. it's it's a it's kind of the elephant in the room, I think. Yeah. Um, in terms of of guys, you know, needing a way out and, and choosing sports as a way out. Did it hurt you or were you able to shelter yourself from some of the more hurtful things that were said in the media? I mean, when ESPN said you were the most dangerous man in football and people were like just taking a side, what was that like? You're 24 years old. I'm just, I mean, you're a little, you're not that much older now, but that's a lot to handle at 24. It was, yeah. I mean, I'm thankful to have a close knit family and group of friends. I didn't put much stake in public opinion ever. Um, you know, there's a cliche that coaches would always say is you're never as good or bad as people think you are. And I, I took that to heart. Um, unfortunately, I, I, the conversation around the issue is often binary and in reality it's really nuanced. And so I, I get, you know, ESPN needs to sell papers I, I, or magazines. I, I don't feel that I'm the most dangerous man in football. Um, I am not even anti-football. I'm pro-information uh, and personal autonomy and making a decision. So, um, it's just the climate we're in. I don't think it's unique to my decision or football. I think people like to get on social media or get on stage and kind of yell at each other for 30, yeah, mi- 30 minutes and call, and call it a TV show or a, or a smart piece. But um, that's not my that's not my bag. Is there enough information out there, do you think, for players, coaches, parents? Is it easily accessible, all this information that you've dug up? I mean, is there a place that people can go to learn more? Yeah, it, it's so complicated, unfortunately. And so the short answer is that I'd say no, there's not a single place uh, to get informed. There's yeah. a number of, of, of good resources. And um, I'm actually in the process of doing some projects um, in the media that will have what we hope to be kind of a clearinghouse of information attached to it. Um, so no single uh, entity, no nonprofit or research group but just kind of everyone that's doing the work, uh, who's funding their work, uh, and even globally. There's some great traumatic brain injury research going on in Sweden, uh, and you'll hear a different tone from a country that doesn't have football uh, as their main funder of neuroscience research or, or the Department of Defense. Um, so just you know, creating that I think is important. Um, it can be done. I think I'm emblematic of the fact that you can become informed, um, but it's not easy, and that's unfortunate. You said that the NFL commissioned actuaries to estimate how many NFL veterans would have brain damage, and the number they came up with was three out of 10. Um, so you're saying if you turn on a game, a third of the guys are gonna have brain damage in their life. And that was just something for you that really, I mean, you're, you're close to these players, you care, I can tell you care about your family, you care about your friends and fellow players, and that was that was just too much to handle, right? Yeah, I, and I don't, uh, I'm not on a soapbox or any moralizing position. Um, 
for me, that's not, I can be entertained or make a living, uh, without, without brain damage being a part of it. Um, but I, I think there are players that have just a different approach to life. I've got friends that are active players that say the money and lifestyle and, you know, my passion for playing are worth rolling the dice on, on those figures, which I respect. I just feel, um, participation or support uh, of football shouldn't be a matter of, of facts and alternative facts. It should be a matter of personal philosophy. So is there something that could be done? I mean, let's say you were the NFL commissioner, you could be in charge of the game. Can the game be re-engineered to be a safe game, a game that you would have your kid play? Or do you feel that it's just so inherently dangerous there's really nothing that can be done? I think. I mean, that's a big yeah, question. No, but it is, and it's a fair one. I, I think it's there. There is actually. It's not quite. You know, A or B. Um, is there? Are there dramatic ways? Do you think that the game could be safer? Yes. So I, I think uh, one approach is just realizing that for over ninety-five percent of people that ever don pads, you don't play beyond high school. Um, and so if we, that's a real, I did not realize that. And so if we could, uh, retool the youth game and I've been a part of a few efforts to delay, uh, entry into contact football, flag football is the highest growing. And it's a great way to build your skills too. Exactly. Um, it's better cardiovascularly. It's better for hand eye coordination. Um, it's a shame that it's sometimes a defense of, of, uh, you know, people that are against, you know, waiting to play tackle until later. They'll say, well, for bigger kids, they need a sport that they can play. Hmm. I was 11 pounds the day I was born. Um, I was always a big kid. Uh, I don't think any, very few people are relegated to a size where they couldn't play basketball or uh, other sports or flag football. If we started tackle um, in ninth grade, let's say, their exposure goes from, right now you can start it as young as five years old. Um, So if you don't play beyond high school there's kids you know now that could play 13 or 14 years of contact football um, and that's you know more than enough to incur some of these you know emotional disturbances or cognitive impairments long term can i just ask is are are kids more susceptible to damage with these hits because their brain's still developing like is it worse to get a concussion at say 12 than it is when you're 22 uh, the brain's still developing for, for men until mid twenties. Um, I don't know the, again, I, yeah. I'm not a neuroscientist, no, I but I, I, I've heard that stated. And I mean, just intuitively, it seems like a bad seems idea like to damage that. a developing brain. Um, but I, but if we could, again, try to be hopeful here, I, yeah. I, I just, um, it's not my nature to, to be so uh, dour, um, for 95% of kids, you know, rather than having 13 years of exposure, yep. if they played flag until ninth grade and then played three or four years in high school, I think absent an acute injury, uh, the, the bulk majority of that percentage would be fine long term. Yeah. So what about rules like um, maybe with the way the game is is played? Because <clears throat> as I mentioned to you, I watched this game up close and it just seems like there's no rules on what you can do with your head and how you can hit someone but then i i imagine too that for spectators who love that aggressive part of the sport they also they wouldn't want that taken away yeah i think out of respect for for fans but also players um sometimes people are surprised when i say this but i in addition to working in mental health and working with players with issues um you know i'm still a linebacker at heart too and sometimes i think some of these rule changes pass the buck to players um, you know, I know guys that have been fined you know, thousands of dollars 
for a hit that was used in promotion of the next week's game. Um, it's kind of bad. You're handcuffed at that point as a player. What should I? What should I do? But you're you're so right. It's like the very thing that they say people shouldn't be doing. They're the things that make the highlight reels, and then people go, "Oh, I really like that player because he plays so aggressively." Yeah. And there's no louder roar than a big hit. Um, and it's 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 what separates football from other sports. And so I'm not. Um, I think within the lines, it's about as safe as it can be. I think they've done a good job with targeting rules and and uh, you know things of that nature. Um, the concern is those, you know, accumulation of sub-concussive hits. So um, I'm, I'm a fan of, of retooling things outside the lines, less hitting in the off season, less hitting growing up. Um, and brain injury is a big problem within a small group. There's only 20,000 living NFL alums. So um, if you're paid and compensated and insured um, and you're an adult and you have the information, uh, you can make a choice, but all of those caveats, I, I think um, we're not quite there yet. So where is the motivation for a, a change going to come from? Because you said that you don't think you can look to the people who are creating the game, and certainly those fans who love the hits, um, for, for the NFL it's their bread and butter, right? Obviously, have, putting on an entertaining game. It's captivating for people. So is it going to come from parents? Is it going to come from other players standing up? Uh, where Where is the change going to come from? If yeah. we look at the positive side of this. Yeah, you know, realistically, I, I don't know that, um, you know, in many ways it's like the NFL has won. Uh, this concussion settlement has, you know, players have been, in my evaluation, kind of ripped off and you can't sue for symptoms of CTE for the next 65 years. And so... In a lot of ways, they've won. Explain that. What, what, is there something they signed to say that? Or? Yeah, it's the part of the settlement. So, you know, roughly a third of living NFL alum, alums have sued the NFL for withholding the the risks of brain injury, um, and it's been settled recently. Um, but part of the language in in the settlement is that you cannot sue for symptoms of CTE for the next sixty five years. Um, that makes it difficult, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, so I think, you know, the and one of the attorneys associated with it, you know, told, I spoke with him recently and just said, you know, pretty bleakly, the NFL has won. Uh, if we're going to try to strike the hopeful tone, I think players taking it into their own hands. Um, there are guys who are completely healthy and live a long and productive life. Um, and then particularly of late, there's guys that have made tens of millions of dollars. Um, so if, you know, if a J.J. Watt wants to take care of a guy whose career ended in 92 and doesn't qualify for any of the benefits that players have in retirement, um, he can be a, a part of that solution. Um, and, and I think that's that can happen. It's a shame it has to be done in a grassroots way when it could have been you know baked into the institution. But mm. um I don't have all the time in the world, and I don't have nearly as much money as some of these superstars. But um, you know, I've been a part of efforts from players that just simply care about guys they played with or against or looked up to growing up. And if it's as simple as you know helping a guy with rent or with a surgery, um, that's that's the point we're at right now. You have given comfort to other players. Is that correct? I'm one of hundreds and if not thousands but so have you been like is it like a call like someone oh someone so is trying to track you down how does how are people getting in contact with you yeah um it's a small community so you know some of the guys that have reached out are friends we played together in, in high school or college or, or you know cross paths in the professional world 
um, others retired playing some both, both both and it age ranges from you know a, a 14 year old that needs advice to um, you know the wife of a 70 year old who has full-blown dementia and so it's been a lot it's got to be a lot to for you to handle having made the choice to protect yourself you're then exposed to those who are dealing with something you're protecting yourself from um, one of the things that I turned to personally just to help me deal with, with all of that uh, was meditation. And it's something you hadn't done before? No, no. Um, and it helped me deal with kind of that distress of, of, you know, trying to do a lot of things for a lot of people that I, that, things that really just couldn't be done. How did you um, find that? How did, how did that come into your life? It was a, it was a happenstance. So, um, my brother-in-law shared a book I've always, you know, loved to read and it was Zen mind beginner's mind, which is about, uh, you know, the man that brought Zen Buddhism to the West. Mm -hmm. And I loved the book intellectually. I thought the concepts were really fascinating. Um, but then he also went into, uh, you know, Zen meditation practice. Um, and I began to do it and it kind of helped me deal with this firestorm I was in with you know, at the time, the media and with, you know, players that needed help. Uh, one of the stressful things in my life was trying to find something efficacious to help former players. Um, and here I'd started this practice and it was helping me and the light bulb went off is that I could introduce this, um, to more and more former players. How has it helped you? Like how, how does it manifest itself? What is it for those people who maybe have not, I've tried meditation and I, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's amazing, but for you, how, how did it help you? Well, it helped me in the same way that ultimately it helped the players that we, we did a pilot study with. Um, I think it helped me really at that time separate the signal from the noise. Um, and so I had, you know, reason to be concerned in terms of brain injury. I had stressful things to deal with, uh, in terms of, of obligations. You certainly created a lot of noise <laughs> and I created a lot of noise. Um, but there was all of this, you know, anxious thoughts about things I needed to do or rumination about something that went a certain way that I, I couldn't change. And so I would be riding out this cycle of stress almost at all times. Yeah. And, you know, a daily practice really helped me quell that. And, you know, not that life wasn't still stressful or, or whatever, but um, I felt like I could navigate it uh, more smoothly. Um, so it turns out, and it seems like another synchronicity that just was unfolded in a really beautiful way, um, one of the pioneers in studying the neuroscience of meditation uh, was a researcher at the University of Wisconsin. Um, there goes to Wisconsin. <laughs> that's right. Every time you meet someone from Wisconsin, they always talk about how, you know, they met someone else from Wisconsin. That's, and they <laughs> 88 square acres surrounded by reality. That's what they call <laughs> Madison. Um, but I, it was amazing. His name's uh, Richard Davidson. He goes by Richie. Um, you know, Richie was, um, he's a confidant of the Dalai Lama. He's put these Tibetan monks and fMRIs scanned their brains and wow. in the early 2000s had the first um, you know picture of, of someone's brain that actually looked different physiologically they had these pristine like bodybuilder brains um, because they'd spent so many years just meditating meditating and going into that Zen like state yeah and so I, I reached out to Richie and said we we should do something together to help players and it it ultimate culminated in a study uh, with 17 former players uh, going through a meditation meditation, you know, program, uh, you stumbled on something good and it was, it was amazing. Yeah. It was, um, you know, most of the guys had never heard of certainly never practiced meditation and within really our first session took to it, um, and still get emails and things from the guys about, you know, just had a good sit, you know, meditation sit or, you know, feeling good or hope you're well. And, um, I, 
think it's great that something like... I can see like, it makes you smile. Yeah, it's great it's that a, something like that can come from what's, you know, a hard situation. Now, what we said, uh, it's four years? Uh, since four years. Four years. Yeah. So how would you describe your, your life now? You mentioned you surf, you mentioned you meditate. Uh, how, how do you describe yourself to people? You're obviously not running out onto the football field now, but what does your life entail? Yeah, I, well, I think the meditation piece is huge. So I, I teach through a program called Search Inside Yourself. So that, that is your job? Was founded I mean, that's at Google. what you, you call yourself a meditation teacher? Or? Uh, that's on the side. So um, I'm part of something that's just getting started uh, in the media. Kind of a secret project? It's not yet public. I wish yeah. I wish this interview was in a month because I'd, I'd you know, no, but regale you, can, you with all the tales. You can, but you can tease it. You can tease us by, with something, but you've got something exciting coming up? I do. So Great. it's... Um, athlete and artist storytelling going deep on issues that don't always get play um you know in, in a unique way uh sounds and I, really cool i'm really excited about it and so uh that's getting underway i teach with search inside yourself on the side uh, and then still do some advocacy with with former nfl players and with veterans so if a young football player is listening to this um and and here's your story and the journey you've taken um what do you say to them? Is it know what you're in to? Is that the best advice you can give them? Let them make their own decision? What would you say to them? Yeah, I would encourage them to wait to play tackle until high school. Um, and then while understanding, you know, I grew up in football crazed Southwest Ohio. And so yeah. I understand just how much people love it and all, passion. all of the, you know, disincentives uh, to report injury. Um, but I'd tell a kid, you know, just remember the big picture. Um, don't, you know, sacrifice because you want to play through an injury in one game in high school. Uh, what might be, you know, the next 60 years. Um, so, I, you know, wait and, and keep perspective would be my advice. And dig into some research like you do would be good, right? Yeah. To know what you're into. I, I certainly encourage kids to read up as much as they could. Um, there, you know, Concussion Legacy Foundation is a good resource. Uh, the Mayo Clinic has done some some research, um, a few other places. But um, realistically, I think just simply waiting and then um, you know taking control of your life. Don't let a coach or screaming fans or you know or even a or your peers or your parent um, you know put you in a bad position. So, I, I mean, your life story is incredible. You've taken a lot of different turns in your life. <laughs> one drastic one about four years ago. Where, where will you be in, say, another 24 years? Uh, where do you see yourself? Do you, are you just going to freelance it, or do you have sort of a clear path ahead that you see yourself taking? Uh, it's not quite clear. I, I, I really have enjoyed this work uh, in storytelling that we're doing with this, this venture that'll be public soon. Yeah, can't wait to hear about it. <laughs> and, um, and I've also enjoyed, and personally it's meaningful, the meditation work. So I think I'll always do those two things. Um, and I'm really interested in the brain. And so uh, don't have the time now, but if uh, you know, a degree in neuroscience down the road might, really? make, might make sense. How fantastic. Yeah. You're quite a human being. Likewise, you, you I've, really, you, I've been a fan for a long time, and um, I'm thankful you had me on. Yeah, well, I, I I feel like you should be lining up for the Amazing Race with somebody. Now, I'm, maybe I'm one in. of your brothers. Where, where did the sign up? <laughs> I think you get out there and crush it. <laughs> I had a, I had a brother try out years ago. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. He didn't make it, but uh, yeah. So I, I I end with a couple of uh, of questions. Um, and and the first one is if you were going to take a road trip across America. And you could take anybody from any time in the car with you. Oh wow! Uh, who you might take? I'm I'm guessing, 
wild guess Vince Lombardi would be in the car with you. He's, I'm just guessing. He's certainly up there. I mean, he's a legend, but you pick your own people. You uh, maybe you want the Dalai Lama instead. I don't know. I'll uh, I'll do our uh, Americana Dalai Lama, John Prine. I okay. take oh, go yeah. on a road trip with John Prine. Nice, and you yeah. got to pick two more people. Two more? Yeah. Ooh. And you uh, could even put someone in the boot. All but, right, all right. Uh, Bill Walton. Ah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, he rides a bicycle, and I saw that bicycle, and the top tube is about <laughs> that high off the ground. I believe it. Oh my um, goodness, that guy. So John Prine and and Bill Walton, and uh, I'm going to break your rule because I don't think there's enough oxygen for anybody after John Prine and Bill Walton. You're going to say with two. So I'll, I'll say sorry third person but well, there's it's taken yeah well <laughs> listen bill's going to take up the whole back seat that's right yeah, yeah. there's no room for <laughs> you'll anybody you'll else have to understand and john's guitar will be in the front so yeah, yeah. you're good that's I'm a great good. car ride yeah. and then your last day on earth if if you were to plan your last day on earth where would you want to be what would you want to be doing mm-hmm. um a party on the beach with my family and close friends um and just kind of do nothing all day together on the beach let the sun set. Yeah. All right. Thank you so Beautiful. much for talking thank to you, me. Thank you, Phil. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's fun. So, so yeah. interesting. Great meeting you. Yeah. I'm I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To see more great interviews, go to philcogan.com and subscribe to Bucket with Phil Kogan wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider rating and reviewing us. And follow Bucket, that's Bucket with an I-T, on Instagram and Facebook. Also, follow me on Twitter at Phil Kogan. See you soon.